Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa, and I'm co-host of the channel along with Robert Talese, Alexis McLeod, and Sarah Tyson. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books in a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Anne-Sophie Barwich, Assistant Professor in Cognitive Science and History and Philosophy of Science at Indiana University, Bloomington. Her new book, Smellosophy, What the Nose Tells the Mind, is just out from Harvard University Press. Smells repel and attract. They bring emotionally charged memories to mind. They guide behavior and thought non-consciously. They give food much of its taste, and the loss of sense of smell can help diagnose disease. But what features of the world do smells pick out? What is the olfactory code? In her new book, Barwich delves into the mysteries of smell and the difficulties of scientific attempts to explain how it works. The science of smell is still quite young. It was as recently as 1991 that olfactory receptor genes were discovered earning discoverers Linda Buck and Richard Axel a Nobel Prize in 2004. What smell researchers have found is an enormously complex system of 400 kinds of olfactory receptors responding to 5,000 different features of molecules. Compare that to our visual system, which has three color receptors responding to specific wavelengths of light. Barwich also interviews contemporary researchers and interweaves excerpts from these interviews into her text, providing an oral history of how smell is being investigated as it is happening right now. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, uh, Anne-Sophie Barwich. Welcome to New Books and Philosophy. Well, thank you for having me. Um, I'm looking forward to our talk about smellosophy, what the nose tells the mind. Um, before we get into the book itself, I'd like to hear a little bit about you. Um, 
can you tell us a bit about yourself, uh, your interest in the topic of smell? Um, and also one of the unusual things about this book, um, as opposed to many, uh, and maybe the first book that I have done an interview with where there's a significant oral history element of, um, in which you've interwoven uh, excerpts from interviews with a lot of the key players, including, you know, two of the, you know, biggest people, you know, Linda Buck and Richard Axel, who won a Nobel Prize for their work. And we'll, we'll talk about them uh, in a bit, but c- can you say something about the yourself, the topic, and then, you know, this, the way this book came about? It's a little bit unusual because originally I'm a trained philosopher, like classical philosophy, and I turned towards philosophy of science and after a while towards cognitive science, so I became more and more experimental. And I should say that I didn't really start out with smell originally. Nobody nobody walks into that kind of area or topic by saying, oh, yes, I want to know how smell works. People usually have like grand ideas like, oh, I want to solve Alzheimer or I want to cure cancer or some kind of bigger metaphysical problem, at least. And smell is one of those neglected topics because it sounds a little bit off. But people jump into the field because they're interested and it captures their attention at some point. That's what happened uh, What happened with me, actually. At some point, I stumbled over a talk about smell. I was like, huh, I have no idea how we smell. And then I realized, well, actually, many people don't have an idea how smell works. And there's so many open questions, scientific as well as philosophical questions, which captured my attention, which actually led me to start out as a philosopher and become a cognitive scientist, because lots of the philosophical questions involved are also experimental questions. And it's interesting for me to to combine the two. But you also mentioned uh, that in the book I interviewed um, lots of the key players in the field, which comes from my interest in the history of science. So when I when I got into the topic of uh, of smell, what I realized pretty quickly is how young the field is. So we're talking about major breakthroughs really in the past couple of decades, basically 30, 40 years, which also means that most of the key players are still alive. So they're alive, they're kicking, they're still doing a lot of uh, contemporary research. Yeah, not many historians of science can say that, well, you know, my subject is still alive. Right. And um, it kind of fascinated me because one thing, you, you know this possibly yourself, when you're reading history of science books, it's fascinating. You think, wow, how must have, it must have been great to be at the frontiers. How must have, must have felt like to just be at the frontiers of current research, to talk to the people who've done this major research and to understand a bit more about science in the making, breakthroughs, discoveries, the sociological but also philosophical and uh, conceptual issues as well as experimental ones, all these things together. So this was a rare opportunity for a philosopher and historian of science to capture a field as it's actually developing and to get a live glimpse behind the scenes, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, that was, that was one of the really interesting things that I, that I really enjoyed about the book was just, you know, having these people, you know, tell you or, and tell us um, as a result uh, you know, this is this is how this particular breakthrough happened. This is what we did. This is you know why we did it, um, uh, and and that is a very rare sort of a 
uh, approach, both for in terms of doing the, the philosophy of science, but also, as you mentioned, the newness of this field, relatively speaking. Although you do mention, you know, you do go through some of the, the actual history of attempts to explain um, smell. And I, I think one of the things that came out for me in the book was uh, the idea that there isn't, there, we really don't know a lot. We, we know more than we did, but there's certain basic things that we still don't know about smell. Um, so one of the, th the ways you pose the question of the book is, you know, how does the brain somehow give meaning to smells? You know, sm some smells are repulsive, some are attractive. Um, so there's that direction of explanation. How, how, how does what we already possess, you might say, in our brain slash mind, give meaning to smell? And then what does the olfactory system, you know, the nose, tell the brain? Can you, can you explain this sort of approach that you're taking to the question of smell? Absolutely. So one of the key things with smell, why we don't know how it works uh, in, in full detail, is one reason is we're still in the discovery of key processes. Um, for instance, the discovery of the olfactory receptors is surprisingly recent. It was uh, Linda Buck and Richard Axel discovered these receptors in 1991. And that was the key element to allow a systematic study of uh, how the stimulus is represented in the brain. But what this showed us actually in the next couple of decades that happened after the discovery is that, first of all, smell works differently than other sensory systems. It's actually different than vision. It's different than audition. It's different also than the motor system or the somatosensory system, which opens up a lot of questions. Namely, first of all, what is that difference? And second of all, to what extent uh, should we model it instead? There were also a lot of other discoveries when it came to the realization that, well, um, it starts even with the receptors. They work differently compared to the visual receptors. And these experimental issues soon raised new uh, philosophical questions, namely this difference in the encoding of chemical information and its transmission and representation in the brain if it's so different, to what extent might that explain these perceptual idiosyncrasies um, that are often actually uh, associated with the sense of smell, such as, well, smells don't seem to have clear boundaries. They seem to be harder to describe. They seem to be very variable in our perception. And they seem to be perceived differently depending on context. These were all the reasons why philosophers as well as scientists actually have neglected the sense of smell in their thinking about theories of perception, theory of uh, mind and brain. And my approach was to say, well, maybe these idiosyncrasies are potentially a good way to rethink our theories of uh, mind and brain, because they might explain more about not only how the system works, but what we also have overlooked in previous theories of perception, because uh, most of them were actually just theories of vision, and not right. only theories of vision, but quite often just theories of vision before we even had a sufficient scientific understanding, basically to do an overhaul of the conceptual foundations of how we approach our understanding of mind and brain through the senses. Okay, so maybe um, to give us a sense of the, of the difference of, of uh, smell versus vision, which is sort of our primary sense, um, uh, could you could, could you explain a bit about 
what was so fundamental and fundamentally and and fundamentally different about olfactory receptors as opposed to um, the receptors in our, our visual system, you know, on the retina and so forth. Could you could you give us a sense of, of why that discovery in 1991 was was so important, and then how it differs from the visual system? So the the discovery was so fundamental because before Buck and Axel not so many people were looking at the sensory system of smell. It was this idiosyncratic little weird system that might actually be completely irrelevant to understanding the mind, to understanding the genetics of the perceptual system in humans. And it turns out that it's not only um, basically working by the same general principles of uh, what's called a second messenger process, a second messenger mechanism that underlies all sensory processing. So there are commonalities, but moreover, it is the largest multi-gene family in the mammalian genome. So that is huge. You basically have more uh, genomic space dedicated to the olfactory system than even the immune system. So that shocked a lot of people. Uh, it surprised a lot of people. And it turns out that uh, not only is it the largest multigene family, it's also part of uh, the, the, the largest uh, protein gene family that is involved in all sorts of fundamental processes in biology, so-called G-protein-coupled receptors. So it was basically a genetic goldmine to, on the one hand, figure out what's the underlying principle of sensory processing, and on the other hand, wow, we might actually be able to use this as a particularly uh, complex system to understand other systems. Uh, so f applying smell, how, how the chemical stimulus interacts with these receptors to other systems ranging from not only other sensory systems, but also other biological processes such as, for instance, neurotransmitter uh, release and uptake, or also regulation of immune resp responses. So this system had so many different applications, basically. Could, could I, just to backtrack a tiny bit. Um, so you say it's, it's the largest multi-gene family, right? Larger than, uh, what was it? Um, the immune system, yeah. Immune system, yeah. Could you, could you explain what, what, what that is and, and why that's so significant? So it's significant because um, if you compare, for instance, the visual with the olfactory system, in vision, we've got uh, three color receptors usually. You know, we've got uh, receptors for red, green, and blue light. In olfaction, we have in humans about 400. So that's quite a big thing. And in vision, at least, you, you, you know, when you've got the stimulus, which is electromagnetic wavelength, it carves it up into specific areas. So the red receptor is responsible for that chunk. The blue receptor is responsible for that chunk and so on. Smell doesn't work like that. You have 400 different receptors and they pick up different things uh, from, so different features from different molecules. And one molecule can be also detected by uh, different receptors, so different parts. What that means in effect is that this combinatorial coding allows you to perceive so many different kinds of chemical stimuli. So we have, uh, there was recently a study saying, well, technically humans should be able to discriminate about one trillion different kinds of odorants. You can't perceive one trillion kinds of different colors. And also, moreover, not just like a different variety of chemicals, but also you can, um, you can also detect stimuli that have never existed in nature. So we can synthesize chemicals in the lab, you can perceive immediately. 
you can't synthesize a new color that has that you haven't been able to to see before so this is like one of the key uh, key differences and the reason why for instance the olfactory system is genetically so diverse compared to and also so occupy such a large space in comparison with vision, for instance, uh, is also that unlike vision, you're constantly adapting to your chemical environment. So you're not adapting to new colors, but if you move around, and humans actually move quite a lot. So if you were to move from, let's say, the UK to uh, China or from America to South Africa or what have you, um, it's actually not that your system remains stable, but olfaction is constantly renewing its olfactory sensory neurons, um, which are in the situated in the mucus of your nose and transmitting the signal to the brain. You have a constant renewal. You've got adult neurogenesis, and you can change your receptor expression pattern depending on where you are, based on what kind of chemicals you're exposed to, your system will express different receptors if there's a big change in your chemical environment. It's a much more flexible system, which requires a broader genetic space, so to speak. Okay. Um, and what, um, you know, part of this comb combinatorial explosion, or at least, you know, huge number of possibilities of different, you know, of combining the different what is picked up by different kinds of receptors. Um, that was one of the questions I had. Well, you 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 mentioned in the book how it will pick uh, different receptors will pick up different features of different molecules, right? Could uh, could you give an example of that? That that would have helped me. Oh yes, so you will, as as I said, like humans have about uh, four hundred different receptors. Sometimes you hear three hundred fifty. The number uh, varies, but you might have one receptor type uh, that says, "You know what? I am detecting a specific functional group, uh, such as, for instance, there might be uh, an oxygen. Uh, there might be, you know, a sulfurous uh, 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 atom in in the molecule." Then some might uh, pick up uh, the the polar surface area, which is the electronic uh, electron cloud around the molecules, and just a specific variable. So they some might just detect certain features, such as particular atoms or atom groups. Some might actually also respond to the position of that gr uh, atom group in the molecule, or to the overall shape of the molecule, or how how much repellent of water a molecule is. Uh, there, mm -hmm. there, uh, there's a variety of features, and the nice thing is that uh, every receptor type has a different range of features to which it responds. So this is why it's different from vision. In vision, you've got a certain, uh, you've got only, you've got a low-dimensional stimulus. You only have uh, electromagnetic wavelength. In olfaction, you have about five thousand different molecular parameters to which it can respond to. And uh, what is what is interesting here? It might be: is it a ring structure? Is it a chain structure of the molecule? Uh, to what extent there might be uh, even a particular geometric configuration, such as do you have a bicyclic compound? Um, and that can also change in interaction with the receptors. It might change its conformation within within the receptor if you've got the, the mo mo molecule interacting with it. 5,000 features, and then you've got one receptor saying, I'll just respond to, let's say, these five features and these particular instantiations of these five features. The next receptor might say, oh, I respond to that feature and these other 10 features. So there's a difference in terms of what features and also how many features. Mm -hmm. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So this, this really does give us a sense of just how complicated the system is. 
Um, and, and one other, you know, before we uh, get to the whole representation or informational question, um, uh, there's also this distinction that, that is drawn between what's called orthonasally and retronasally delivered smells. Could you, could you explain that briefly? Oh, yes, because so far we talked, I mean, many people possibly had in their mind the assumption that smell is, you know, what you inhale, what you sniff in. And that is what's called orthonasal smell. But there is a second sense of smell. People are often not aware of that this is part of your olfactory system. It's kind of like a second sense of smell. And that's retronasal. And you know it when you've got a cold. Food suddenly tastes bland. Like you can't, you can hardly taste something. And people think it's taste, but that's actually smell. Think about it. Like when you've got taste, for instance, you have, uh, you can taste sour, sweet, umami, bitter, and salty, but you don't have a strawberry receptor on your tongue and you don't have a mint receptor on your tongue. That's basically what happens while you eat is a retronasal uh, pathway, which means when you, when you eat, you chew, you've got the molecules emanating from your food and they travel through the back of your throat where this opening uh, connects your mouth with your nasal cavity. So they travel through the back of your throat up to your nose, it being like these molecules are being pushed with the air coming from your lungs, up to your nose to the epithelium on the top of your nose. And it's basically the same receptors that respond to when you inhale and also when mm. you eat to certain molecules. The difference, of course, is, and that's most of the most of the fundamental difference, why orthonasal and retronasal smell is not exactly identical. One, re one thing is, for instance, that you actually have a different um, pattern based on what molecules reach your, your epithelium first. And of course, through the difference in temperature and the, the airflow from your lungs, you will have a different sequence of molecules hitting your receptor sheet. And you might wonder, okay, and what's, what's the consequence of that? Well, you do smell things differently than you taste them or flavor them, so to speak. We, we don't have a good verb for that, actually. But think about coffee, for example. I mean, coffee smells fantastic. But when you drink it, the taste is kind of like disappointing. It's overpowered by this bitter taste, but you don't have that much of a uh, uh, of, of an aroma in comparison with like the inhaling. You've got the opposite when you've got cheese. Like certain cheeses, I hated as a kid. They 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 were smelling like teenage feet or something. You would you would pick up from <laughs> under your nails or something. It's like really disgusting sometimes. And later you learn to appreciate that because when you eat them. The retronasal smell, the flavor, is different. Uh, it doesn't taste like smelly feet. Uh, so there's a difference in between orthonasal and retronasal perception of the same thing, such as cheese or coffee. Huh. Um, so should do you think we should like stop talking about taste and smell as separate? I mean, I know a lot of people say that they're. Uh, I mean, it's it's fairly common knowledge that these are that these are overlapping in some way, but it, it, it sounds like, at least within the, the olfaction community, that these are just, it's basically one system. It's just that the receptors are uh, stimulated in different ways. That's one thing. But of course, with flavor, uh, the thing is that it's much, uh, much, 
much more integrated also in a, a cross-modal multisensory perception because when you eat uh-huh. you've got the you've got the motor action this is why you perceive uh, uh, flavors in the mouth and not in the nose and no matter how hard you try you cannot relocate your phenomenal phenomenological perception so the impression the feeling remains in the mouth because this is where the activity is and you also have a strong interaction, of course, with uh, with a with a mouthfeel, the touch, the temperature, what kind of auditory perception you have. So a lot of people who work on flavor perception, they they look precisely at these kind of cross modal interactions. And from a philosophical perspective, there are philosophers like Barry Smith, for instance, who's who's been doing great work precisely on this particular. Uh, like in this particular area and also to understand well smell is a fundamental part of course of flavor perception and it's it's a key determinant but how shall we also understand then the impact of uh, the other modalities in relation to smell right okay good um so to one of the key philosophical questions is always you know what sort of information is this sense giving us, right, about the external world. Um, and as far as I can tell from, from reading the book, we haven't, uh, we, we don't really know. Um, or as one might put it, we haven't cracked the olfactory code, which may or may not be a good metaphor, but that's a, it's a common way of speaking. Um, so what, what is, uh, what's the problem here? I mean, why, why uh, what would it be to understand uh, what it is that smell represents? What are, what are we looking for and, and why don't we have that answer yet? So as you already said, actually, the, the cue is in the metaphor, the olfactory code. Uh, that's often misleading because people then like to just look at, well, what parts of chemical features might then tell us what perception is associated with the stimulus. The problem with that is twofold. First of all, we're still assuming that uh, we're detecting or what the olfactory system is primarily tuned to is to represent uh, the chemical environment as different chemicals, individual chemicals. But that's not the case. What we're perceiving is um, chemicals in context. We've got, we're constantly surrounded by hundreds and hundreds of uh, different airborne uh, molecules, volatiles, and they have influx, they're uh, constantly changing. And what we're perceiving rather is, first of all, mixtures, and second of all, changes in mixtures, whether there's an increase of concentration, whether there's a different cloud, a different combination of molecules. So one thing is while we haven't looked at it properly or haven't fully understood it yet is we need to look at mixture perception and mixture perception is highly complex like one molecule as i said has like five thousand parameters in binding with the receptors but now imagine that you've got molecular clouds mixtures which uh, coffee is about 800 compounds so we're talking big data for your brain and that of course is hard to model in a scientific sense the other thing, next to just the chemical complexity and that we should go away from individual chemicals towards mixtures if we model it, the other reason why we haven't cracked the code, uh, so to speak, is that we ignore the biology the whole time. So you see many scientific papers, but also some philosophers of olfactory perception who focus too much on the chemical stimulus in isolation, as if this was just a matter of chemistry and we're comparing somehow microstructure with each other. 
But what is really giving sense meaning and telling us what we're perceiving and representing is actually how the biology, how the sensory system works. That starts with the genetics of the olfactory system, that continues also with the way uh, these signals are integrated in the brain and what kind of, what features does the olfactory system pick up in the first place. And it turns out, to, to, to emphasize that, it turns out that the receptors do pick out features you would not necessarily get from a purely chemical analysis. That was one of the recent discoveries, actually. Could you explain that? Oh, yes. Uh, so you see, for instance, some papers where you've got these uh, two data sets that are constantly being compared. On the one hand, you've got a list of molecules and their molecular parameters. And on the other hand, you've got the psychophysical data. So the data where, okay, this is this perception, this is that perception, often in a verbal expression, like, okay, cis hexanol is uh, fresh-cut green grass. And then you often have people who say, let's find, because there's so many features involved. I mentioned a couple of times these several thousands uh, of molecular parameter that people say, well, this is just a matter of big data. If we only have the right tools now, of course, with AI and machine learning, if we only apply a good algorithm, we should be finally able to figure out what are the key features based on the chemical stimulus alone. And there recently were a couple of studies uh, coming from the lab where I spent my three years while I was writing the book uh, by Stuart Feuerstein at Columbia, who actually asked a very simple question. It's an empirical question, but it's also a conceptual one. Do the olfactory receptors in your nose, these, these proteins, do they respond to the same features and do they classify chemicals as similar based on these features, as an analytic chemil- chemist would model these, uh, these molecules in isolation. It turns out that not. What that means is basically that uh, there are certain, there's a certain hierarchy of what are the important features for chemical similarity between classes of chemicals that uh, analytic chemists are trained to recognize. And what they showed is that actually the olfactory receptors prefer different features. So this is an approach also known in pharmacology where people are saying, well, instead of looking at chemistry in isolation, we need to figure out how the the proteins respond to that. And it sounds counterintuitive, but it turns out that proteins really, how biology perceives chemistry is different from how a chemist would model chemistry. So there is no theory-neutral approach to the stimulus, and that's why I say we've got to look more at biology and how that works. tells us much more about what we're actually picking up as information from the environment. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. So um, so just to kind of clarify a little bit, in, in vision, I mean, that's kind of the standard often. Um, 
our visual system gives us information about um, size, um, color, uh, shape, uh, distance. Um, you know, so th so there's a certain number of of parameters that this is what the electrochemical, oh, sorry, electromagnetic um, information bestows upon us or, or provides us with. Um, and I take it that in the case of smell, uh, even though chemists will classify various um, chemicals into certain classes, um, you know, alcohols or, you know, depending on the, the uh, molecular composition and their structure and so forth, right? Um, and what you're saying is the olfactory system doesn't classify things by those very nice chemists classifications. It's got some other sorts of classifications and we actually don't know what they are and, and there might be many, many, many of them and not just like the basic ones that we think of with vision, right? Is, is, that, is that the problem basically? Um, yes, so you, I have a good example to, to really illustrate that, which I could have mentioned earlier, is that so one particular feature that puzzled a lot of olfactory scientists uh, throughout the 20th century is the fact that it's actually not the case that um, molecules um, with a similar structure will necessarily have the same smell or that um, certain olfactory quality is caused by molecules of uh, the same chemical composition. A good example are musks. So musk molecules, um, important ingredient in perfumery, they are structurally so diverse. There is, they're really, they have features that are uh, different from each other. So um, not just in terms of the, the shape of the molecule, but also specific atom groups. That's one thing. We've got one odor quality, musk, in terms of like how it smells, uh, versus like, well, what different molecular features can can be responsible for it. The other example is the uh, reverse case, where you also have molecules with an almost identical microstructure and different smells. An example here are isosteric molecules. You can have uh, both cases, so to speak. And people thought, well, what's, what's going on here? Did we get the wrong features? And they were puzzled by it. How can different molecules have the same smell and et cetera, et cetera. The point is that biology explains some of those features, like th those those irregularities. They're not irregular. We've just been focusing on the wrong feature. And this is where uh, smell is a bit more complex than, for instance, with vision, where you can basically carve up the perceptual space and the physical space, and you can you can compare them with each other on a linear scale. With smell, with 5,000 features and the molecules uh, basically being like the receptors detecting different parts, uh, you've got you've got a mosaic of detection, and there is no commonality. One feature that defines them all, kind of a lot of the rings, like one one molecular feature to rule them all. Uh, but it's much more well. There's so there's an inter there's an intersection, so to speak, and that of course uh, is even more complicated, given that you don't just have a molecule interacting with a receptor, but the molecule and the interactor, uh, the receptor in their interaction also change configuration so you can have a molecule with a ring uh, with a with a chain structure for instance so where you've got uh, let's say uh, a chain of carbon atoms that might be bent like deformed turned into a different shape within the receptor and in the receptor adopting a ring shape 
So that will, of course, affect of how, as what the receptor is going to detect this molecule. So there's so much going on that on a chemical level is quite puzzling. But it also explains that on the perceptual level, how different physical features will not line up according to a neat hierarchy of this feature or that feature. Okay, good. Um, and one of the things, I mean, the biology, uh, the, the book is focused on a lot of the, the biological features of the olfactory system. And one of the things I was wondering was in terms of trying to identify the information, um, how do... Uh, how do broader perspectives like looking at the behavior of the organism, right? Because different organisms uh, sample odors differently, right? So they're behaving differently. Um, and they're, I was also thinking about, you know, phylogenetic relationships in terms of how olfactory systems uh, might be related uh, in various you know, evolutionary lineages. What, what sort of information do we know about those things? And, and how do those sorts of, you know, sort of a broader behavioral and then a evolutionary perspective, how, uh, how advanced are we in those areas as opposed to just, you know, the neurons, the brain? Um, and uh, is, are there any theories or attempts to uh, try to solve the, you know, crack the code using information that isn't just brain-based? Oh, definitely. There's a lot of research uh, when it just comes to behavior such as sniffing. How does mm. just sniffing as a behavioral uh, part actually influence uh, your perception of odors? So there is an there's an active embodied element in that. Because, of course, when you're inhaling or when you're exhaling, uh, you, you your brain is not in the same state. So quite often people like to go like, well, we need to go away from neurocentric explanations. I'm actually very neurocentric uh, for the si simple reasons that the brain is part of the body. So, of course, that the, these are these embodied effects will be very important to understand what the brain is doing, but it is the central processing element. So when it comes to behavior, on the one hand, you've got sniffing. When you're inhaling, like to what extent you've got the synchronization of oscillations in the brain is important. Also, how, how fast you're sniffing, like to, to what extent, what, what molecules are reaching your epithelium first has an effect here. Also, you're actually sniffing in stereo, so you've got two nostrils uh, and they're actually breathing at different speeds so one is always slightly slower than the other one is always slightly clogged up and it changes there so there's a cycle uh, with which uh, in which uh, the the speed actually changes so that you've got a broader perception you're you're throwing the net wider so to speak because of course with with the speed it uh, it will change on whether the lighter or the 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 heavier molecules hit your nose hit your epithelium first so that's one thing. The other thing is, of course, that if we compare uh, just humans with other animals, um, we'll actually see that behavior plays a lot of role in terms of how important smells are in specific contexts. So people like to say, you know, humans are not good at smelling. Look at dogs. Like they, they're clearly so much better and odors play a much more uh, important role to them in their behavior. 
And you think, well, look at where they have their nose or their snouts. It's constantly at the ground, at like, close to the surface of things, which is, of course, where uh, odors emanate from. And we are uh, on two legs. We're bipedal. So, of course, for us, we're so far removed from the source of things that uh, there is a different behavior towards how much we perceive of smells in the environment and how much it plays into our constant perception. And in fact, I like to say uh, that what being bipedal allowed us is to free our mind from being constantly aware of smells. Because if you, you, you know that if there's a smell, it's very hard to focus on anything else. Like they really right. take over your consciousness. Like you've got a stink or there's something and trying to figure out what it is. And it's fascinating, but it's very hard to focus on other things while you're smelling. And being further away from the source of things allows you to actually think about other things than what's that smell now? Uh, and when you see dogs, they're constantly surrounded by smells. They're constantly distracted by them. So, of course, it plays a stronger role. That does not mean that smells don't play a good role in our behavior or that we're bad at smelling. Um, because, two, we can just try, test it behaviorally. There was uh, an experiment by Noam Sobel who had in Berkeley a couple of undergrads uh, compared their behavior with that of a dog. So you had a dog trying to trace a, a trail of pheasant, dog made it, and you see this kind of trailing behavior. They're never going in a straight line. They're kind of tracing the concentration gradient of like how concentrated the molecules are. And humans are doing the same. You had a couple of undergrads, not with a pheasant smell, but with a chocolate smell, sensory deprived. So they, they had gloves and headphones, and they were, they were wearing some glasses to make sure that they only followed their nose. And they were doing the same behavior as the dogs, and they were also getting better with training. So it's not that we're bad at smelling and that smells don't play a role. It's that uh, we hardly are aware of them because uh, we don't crawl on all fours. And for us, it's much more important to, for instance, detect smells in food as flavors. So we're much more kind of close-up smelling, while dogs are both close-up smelling and also distant smelling. That being said, you this is where it's also important to have a cross-cultural perspective. Uh, we're so far talking very much on a western centric model but there was a there's a there's a great book by uh, Constant Klaas and David House and Anthony Sinnott uh, Aroma and they had this example of uh, a tribe in the uh, Amazon region the Dizana Indians and of course they use their sense of smell as a distal sense to figure out what's ahead of them and how far and what kind of thing it is. Because if you're in the middle of the Amazon region, you know, like there's, there's trees, there's fog, there's humidity, you can't see a thing. So you won't see in time when there's a predator and how far away the predator is, like let's say a certain form of big cat, like a, a panther or something. But you will smell it. And you will have an, uh, if you train your sense of smell, you will smell also in what kind of proximity and from what direction and what kind of predator it is. So smell actually still has an important behavioral capacity in humans. It just depends on how we use it, basically. Okay, good. Um, so let's turn to the what does the brain, you know, how do we give meaning to smell aspect rather than the what does the nose sort of inform the brain about. Um, uh, so one of the examples you give of an experiment of, is the idea that um, uh, what we smell will differ depending on the context, you know, some other visual stimuli or something like that. Um, and that uh, because of this 
addition or interpretation of whatever is coming in through the nose. Um, you describe it as like neither an inner sense nor an outer sense. Um, could you could you explain how the brain or or our cognitive or what we already possess in terms of our background knowledge? You know, it's what is it that um, how how does smell differ depending on what we're kind of bringing to the the uh, the smell itself? Does that make oh, sense? Yeah, there's a variety of things going on. Um, one thing is that, uh, as you mentioned, there's uh, there's the question of whether something is uh, internally or externally defined. And of course, we've got the distal senses uh, like vision and audition. And we like to think of other senses such as, uh, for instance, um, touch as being more inward oriented. And smell sits at the border of these two. On the one hand, we are using smell as a distal sense. We are perceiving molecules in our environment. On the other hand, what they what they mean or what perceptual meaning they have is strongly contingent on our physiological makeup and also on uh, actually our daily, uh, like the hormonal state or even our attentive state. So there's a variety of things going on here. And to give an example, for instance, is that... Um, you know, for instance, that if you're hungry, you will perceive a smell differently. Or if you're hungover, a smell, for instance, of whiskey, which while you were sober is still great, uh, if you just had too much of it and the next morning, it will not have the same kind of effect on you and you will perceive it differently. There were certain notes that just make you even more sick, so to speak. So there's, there's this part. To what extent... Uh, the organism, like we are basically tailored in response to our chemical environment. And that's what smell is communicating to us. The other thing is also that it's not just uh, the inward outward uh, uh, distinction, but also just the the way smell itself works. So you mentioned, for instance, that um, there's a there's a difference or there's a variability in how we perceive certain things in different contexts. That also has to do with the fact of what smells are. So you have basically molecules in the environment, but it's not that these molecules uh, are always in specific contexts. They're promiscuous. You have the same chemical stimulus um, being part of a variety of different contexts. And in these contexts, they mean something different. And my favorite example in the book is, and I bring this up uh, quite often, but I think it's just a very visual and, 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 and informative case of what I mean by that, is that there was a study by Rachel Hertz, a psychologist, who gave people two bottles. And she did that with uh, several cases, but she gave them two bottles and they were identical. So same color liquid, uh, same size, and uh, one was called Parmesan and the other vomit. And people were adamant that uh, these were of a different smell, but they were actually the same mixture of uh, mixed between isovaleric and butyric acid. The point is that instead of thinking, oh, see, smell is unreliable uh, because we, we, we clearly couldn't detect the real smell. No, actually butyric acid, isovaleric and butyric acid is part of both Parmesan and vomit. So you often have specific molecules in different chemical environments where they do mean something different. Another example is, for instance, indole. So indole is a molecule with a very strong fecal scent. Uh, 
but you will actually have it in different contexts. You would think like, I know, I know, you know, I, I detect, uh, I know shit when I smell it, so to speak, but uh, I'm going to ruin coffee now for you. Coffee, I've mentioned a couple of times, has like 800 molecules. 3% of coffee, of your coffee aroma is indole. You're literally drinking shit. So um, you don't perceive it because it's in the mixture. Like the, the whole is more than the sum of its parts. But it is part of it. And you think, well, why don't we perceive it? Uh, or the, what's going on here? We can perceive it, just not consciously. So it's not only just in coffee, but it's also in jasmine. Jasmine also has about 3% of indole shit in it. And people were, for instance, there was a study given. Yeah, it's, I'm sorry. I'm talking about, a lot about shit. It comes with a, with a, with a topic. Uh, but people were giving two uh, bottles of jasmine and one was uh, purely synthetic without any indole so it was a clean version and the other one was natural uh, jasmine with uh, well that contaminant with uh, indole in it and people they didn't detect uh, uh, the shit per se but they could detect the difference they're like okay these are not identical we're very good at discriminating different mixtures even if we can't always describe them well but we're very good at saying okay this is not the same there's something different and now comes the really cool thing. People preferred the shitty version, the indoor version. So Freud would have a field day with that particular story, I think. <laughs> um, right. Or, or it could just be that they're, they're used to that one and they're not aware, right, rather that, than the, the cleaned up one. Right. That's so a good question. That's a very good yeah. question to figure out to what extent, well, if you train people or if, they're, if their daily environment is more the kind of synthetic version, whether they would start to prefer it because uh, it's mm. more known and familiar to them. They're a very good question because quite often yeah. how we perceive certain things and whether we like them or not has a lot to do with how we acquired our knowledge about them, whether we're familiar with them, kind of associative learning. Yes, indeed. Well, speaking of associative learning, I mean, I was, uh, you mentioned conscious and and uh, you know one of the other sort of borderline or or lines that that odor crosses is this, you know, conscious and non-conscious perception. So we can be very, you can be in an environment and not smell or not, you know not be conscious of it, and then like suddenly become conscious of a smell, and then vice versa, where. Uh, sort of notoriously people get used to a particular like their dog or smoke you know cigarette smoke or something where they stop smelling it and of course if you're not in that environment constantly you 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 immediately right you're immediately aware that you know this is a house with a dog or this is a house with a smoker or something like that um could you could you say a bit about this um uh, the, the sort of complicated relationship that smell has to consciousness and, and conscious and non-conscious perception? Oh, yes. And you, you're basically hitting precisely in the curve where, where I, I have to have my short rant. This is precisely why we need to include biology and a good understanding of the physiology of a sensory system in our also philosophical theories of perception. Because there's one reason why we're not constantly aware of smells all the time. And one is uh, that the receptors habituate to, um, they adapt to different odors. So at some point they just stop firing. Like, okay, I know this, I know this is there in the environment. So I, I just don't bother sending the signal to the brain and being active the whole time. You also have a cognitive uh, uh, um, adapta uh, habituation in the sense that, you know, at some point you're just used to a smell and your brain goes like, okay, 
I know this kind of goes into the background of consciousness, so to speak. And this is, uh, as you described, if you if you go in your flat, your flat actually has a smell, but you're rarely aware of it. Unless you go for a holiday, you come back and you know that smell. Or you visit your family, uh, you know, your, your mother's house has a specific smell, but you lose it after a while. That is, uh, that is quite interesting. And it explains, for instance, why we're not always conscious of smells. That doesn't mean, however, that these unconscious signals or these signals are completely gone or not influencing our decision. So quite often we have certain signals that might not be at the forefront of our conscious awareness, but they do influence our decision making and how we perceive things. And I can give you, for instance, um, one example, which is a a personal example of mine that is uh, before I ever started getting interested in smell but that episode was kind of it burned itself into my memory it was when i was still in berlin at the humboldt university as an undergrad and i went there every morning to the institute of philosophy uh, in this corridor and you recall of course that the humboldt university is part of was part of east germany so i was walking up and down and one morning something was different it felt as if the space was different so the whole environment and at some point, I, I don't know why, but I asked the, the cleaner and saying, well, um, did you change the cleaning liquid? And so I guess, and that was 20 years, by the way, after the wall came down. It's like, oh, yes, we ran out of our stock of cleaning liquid. Well, that tells you a lot about East Germany and their, their kind of desire to just get things accumulated. But it also is, it shows you that your perception of things can be influenced by olfactory, uh, um, by olfactory input without you being aware that it's olfactory. For me, it was a difference in terms of spatial perception of the room. I didn't perceive it immediately as there's a different smell. It just was sort of subconsciously. So there is definitely an effect. And another example is uh, your partner choice. So people like to think, you know, we, we choose partners because that person is so witty and funny and intelligent and good looking and what have you not and great personality. Yeah, but lots of it is actually the smell. Um, it's, it's, it's literally, we don't like to think our, uh, in terms of ourselves as that, but uh, a lot of it is not sex appeal, but smell appeal, so to speak. And there were studies that um, women, for instance, preferred... The, when they gave them body odor, like T-shirts, which were sweated through by some guys, um, preferred the T-shirts of... Yeah, it's, it's, I know, these are the kind of funny pictures you see in science press releases where people are sniffing each other's uh, armpits and things like that, uh, which, which makes for great slides. Um, but women preferred the odor of men with a complementary immune system. So that's actually a small genetic difference, but we can perceive it as... Like in terms of differences of smell, we might not be able to describe it, but we can perceive it. Now comes the really cool thing. Women who were on the pill preferred the odor of men with a similar immune system, with a complement, like with, with basically a similar enough immune system. So the sex appeal of your partner might really change. But of course, you're not picking out your partner in terms of sniffing, going like, I like that smell. But it does influence your perception of whether that person is resonating with you on one level or the other, which is... I find quite interesting because it shows also to what extent we need to rethink decision making. What are the conscious? What are the subconscious factors? And what is really the? Do we just rationalize something after our decision that might be influenced by different things? So this is where I think smell is actually quite interesting. Well, there there actually is. I mean, I um, there there actually is some work in moral psychology that is. Uh, where, if I'm re- remembering this correctly, uh, where p- 
people judged certain, uh, you know, made certain moral judgments, uh, you know, something being worse or bad and something being good. Uh, and what the psychologists were manipulating was the odor. Um, so I don't know, were you, were you aware of that? I don't, I don't recall your, but there is definitely uh, smell-related research in moral psychology uh, in which the smell is manipulated at some non-conscious level and the moral judgments differ. Oh, absolutely. I didn't mention it in the book. Uh, one reason is that I had to keep it shorter than, than I would like to. But uh, yeah. the other thing is there are, there are some interesting studies. The one you mentioned and also another one where they reversed the issue, where it was about in-group and out-group behavior because a lot of moral judgments uh, refer to the smell. And a lot of also, unfortunately, a lot of social in-group and out-grouping, even like especially when it comes to also racist tropes, have to do with smell. So they gave people uh, fans of a certain football team, um, different different uh, different T-shirts of different uh, teams, and the smell wasn't always actually different. But people then said, "Oh yeah, of course, like ours, we prefer our smell, and uh, the other team stinks, so to speak, or it smells less well." That had nothing to do, actually in this case with the smell. There was kind of top down, just a, a moral judgment about smell without necessarily being accurate uh, in terms of whether it really was the same or not. Uh, but you also have the opposite; like smell does influence moral judgments as well. Um, when it comes to even just uh, the question of, well, is something that was actually the interesting thing is historically also investigated. Um, I mentioned Max Giesler, a German philosopher at the end of the 19th century. He looked at moral odors. So to what extent there are certain odors that enhance or complement moral judgment. So the idea is actually fairly old. The, mm -hmm. the problem with these studies, also one reason why I didn't want to get too much into them in the book, is that um they're very tricky to do and how much of that is really indicative of what's happening or not just the way we project our own moral judgments on even or implement them in a scientific study is very hard to do and um it's easy to to just over interpret something especially when it comes to social moral judgment and smell right good um so also emotions. I mean, uh, you, you mentioned it, you talk a bit about uh, Proust, right, famously, right, the, uh, his memories are, he goes down memory lane as a result of smelling uh, Madeleines and, and so forth. And, and one of the interesting things that you mentioned, and it, hadn't, it had not occurred to me, was that uh, he gives us, you know, pages, I think, of description, but he never really says anything about the smell themselves and yet it's somehow it has prompted or primed you know this whole uh you know this this whole train of memories um could you could you say a bit about the relationship between smell and um and emotion uh, absolutely. First, let me have my rant about Proust. Uh, it was my, <laughs> my yeah, it, it's just like I have to do this. Uh, and it was my colleague, uh, Avery Gilbert, who uh, made me aware of that. So he, he wrote the book a couple of years ago, What the Nose Knows. Beautiful book. I really recommend it. And there's this one episode where he has a rant about Proust. And that's uh, when I interviewed him, uh, we had a talk about that as well. Because many people often start with, oh, yes, the Proust effect. You know, you have a smell and you immediately are transported back into your childhood. 
And then you think, well, hang on a second. If you look at how Proust actually described this episode, uh, which became synonymous with the Proust effect, something different is happening. First of all, as you say, he never describes the smell of the thing. You don't know how the tea smells. You don't know how the Madeleine smells. You don't know anything about the sensory dimension. And also, he doesn't immediately, he's not immediately transported back into his childhood. Rather, he kind of sits there and he contemplates and he tries to consciously recall his, his, his childhood with his aunt. So something different is happening because this is not how we experience that kind of autobiographic connection. Like, okay, we smell something and you're transported back. I remember I was in a, in a DIY shop and at some point I was immediately transported back to my father's garage years and years ago. So it's not that we're sitting there and contemplating like Proust did. It comes back immediately, but it's not with every kind of smell. It's specific smells, especially from childhood. And I think this is what Proust sort of got right, but has been often misinterpreted. It's actually smells often, some smells, through our childhood, through the way we're, we're kind of embedding them in our personal uh, history, they become tags of experience. We're not recalling them as such, but they basically are placeholders, or like sensory placeholders for something that was very important in our personal history and our personal narrative. Uh, people often go back to their hometown and there's a certain smell and a lot of memories come back. So this is where where actually smell and autobiographic memory is quite interesting. And then there's the issue of emotion attached to it. Uh, Quite often we're having certain emotions uh, that accompany that, especially childhood, of course. These are very pleasant or very unpleasant experiences or they remind us of something. Uh, You know, when when you're walking across and there's a specific kind of perfume, that of your your ex-boyfriend or your ex-girlfriend, you know, which... Uh, it still sometimes pulls some heartstrings. And that's where people say often like to say, well, smell and um, emotion are, are like deeply ent- entwined, unlike other senses. I don't think that's the case. People often forget that, well, you have the same with certain songs. If you've got a certain uh, breakup song that you listened over and over and over and over again until you stopped crying at some point, if you hear that song 10 years later, you still have some, it doesn't leave you cold. Like they still, it still plucks your heartstrings. The difference with smell is that it also tr- almost transports you back physically. There is a material presence that is not uh, comparable to the other senses. So if you've got certain smells, childhood smells, you're almost feeling as if you're back in time, as if there's a physical transportation. And um, my interpretation is that one of the reasons why that is so is because you do have these molecules, you do have matter directly interacting with the receptors. You do smell these molecules. Unlike with vision or uh, audition, where you've got a distal sense of uh, either pressure waves coming from objects or or, uh, surface reflections coming from objects, with smell, you really touch and tangle with these materials, like the receptors and the molecules. By the way, that also means I have to bring this up when you're going to a public toilet and smells shitty. Yes, shit is hitting and directly touching your receptors. Um, so this is this is why there's a physical presence that's unparalleled with these other distal senses, and that causes also some of the uh, the ways in which smells can act as very very direct tags of experience like really transporting you back and also causing some memory, uh, some some emotions. And just to, to finish uh, that thought, 
often you hear people saying, well, the reason why smell, memory and emotion are so closely related is because smell is one of the few systems, well, it's, it's the only sensory system that bypasses the thalamus. Like vision is processed through the thalamus, uh, which is a neural structure at the center, at the core of your brain. Uh, audition does so. But smell does not. So you've got a much more direct contact with, uh, with, with, uh, for instance, the amygdala, etc. Well, I'm a bit skeptical of that. I'm skeptical for that. A for the perceptual reasons I just mentioned, and B, we often like to do reverse inference. We're trying to find justification for our intuitions about sensory systems in the structure of the brain. And I think, well. We don't know enough and there are lots of interesting questions that might prove us wrong. So this is why I'm always hesitant with these over-interpretations. There is definitely something different in terms of structure and that's interesting, but I wouldn't just make a general judgment. This is why smell is this and unlike uh, unlike audition, for instance. No, no, emotion is also very much uh, important in, for instance, audition. Right. But it does sound like you, you think that uh, the idea that smell is a tag of experiences is kind of, we should kind of take that literally in a way. Oh yes, so when you asked me earlier uh, what smells are and represent, well, Mm. not simply chemicals, but really two things. One thing is our chemical environment and quite often that is determined by our interactions with it, which is determined by our own past, our own expectations, our uh, anticipations, our like, our dislike. There's a lot of association and interaction. It's it's actually relational, so not relative, but a relational experience. And uh, this is why that introduces also a lot of variation in our perception, why certain things smell different or seem to smell different uh, to us. Right. Um, well, we're, you know, we're out of time. Uh, so it's, it's been a, you know, fascinating tour through contemporary smell research and all the different questions that, you know, some have been not really answered. We've gotten little pieces um, and there's just so much more to do. So to close, let me just uh, ask what's next for you or you, you mentioned that, you're doing some experimental stuff at this point. Um, so what's what's on your horizon? Oh, yes, indeed. I am becoming experimental. So I'm currently uh, starting, starting my lab, buying instruments. I want to study specific aspects of categorization in smell, especially how we categorize and discriminate uh, ambiguous stimuli. So if you've got certain smells that can be A or B, I mentioned parmesan and vomit, but in the book I give a several, a couple of examples. But ha- what's actually happening on a, on a neural level? To what extent, what's the neural mechanism or, or, or pattern or fingerprint involved in that? And I'm interested in particular to look at this uh, through temporal patterns. So quite often we're studying the senses through spatial representation. That's again, something we took up from vision. But I wonder to what extent we need to look more at uh, temporal patterns, like a Morse code in the brain that might tell us more uh, in terms of how the brain discriminates and classifies things, because smells are much less spatial in their perception, as well as in their neural representation. And I think we're underestimating the fact in which the brain is actually a temporal like machine, I apologize for the metaphor. I know many philosophers don't like that metaphor, but it's a, it's a temporal organ. 
And a lot of things actually unfold in time. And, and space often is a consequence out of that. So I want to look at um, EEG patterns, so electroencephalography, to look at to what extent certain temporal patterns can tell us about discrimination and categorization, especially of ambiguous smells, and uh, what that might also tell us about illusions, perhaps reflecting back on uh, things such as the gestalt switch in, in vision or um, in, in, uh, in audition it would be, for instance, the McGurk effect. And audition, right, yeah. right. Uh, good. Well, I mean, I wish you luck with that. I mean, it's it's uh, it's a difficult time to be steps to be starting a lab, but um, <laughs> you know, and, yeah. uh, and another sense, you know, maybe just just setting things up and and doing all the tweaking and everything. Maybe it's just the right time <laughs> in a way. Uh, but I wish uh, you luck with that, and um, uh, you know. Well, uh, I, well, thank I'm, you. I'm thank sure you. we'll be seeing so. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much, first of all, for having me, but also a uh, uh, lot of the questions you ask. As you can see, I, as I guess you can hear, I could talk about this the whole day, and there are so many things that uh, that are related, which are sometimes hard to to tear apart. So I can I can only tell people that there's lots more to know about smell. Great. Very good. Okay, well, uh, thanks again, and uh, good luck with your, with your work. Thank you, and thanks for having me. Okay, bye-bye. You've been listening to my interview with Anne-Sophie Barwich. She's Assistant Professor of Cognitive Science and in History and Philosophy of Science at Indiana University in Bloomington. We've been talking about her new book, Smellosophy, What the Nose Tells the Mind, which is just out from Harvard University Press. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and thank you for listening. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.